Hello, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Ben Vogley, and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today, I'm joined by Frank Baumgartner, the Richard J. Richardson Distinguished Professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He is one of the leading scholars of public policy, framing, agenda setting, policy change, and lobbying in the United States. In recent years, he has focused on statistical studies of criminal justice issues, including the death penalty and racial disparities in traffic outcomes. Frank's most recent book is Suspect Citizens, which focuses on racial differences in the outcomes of routine traffic stops. The book was recognized with the Best Book Award from the Law and Court section of the American Political Science Association in 2019. Frank, it's a privilege to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me, Ben. It's nice to be here. So we have a lot to cover, but I want to start by talking a bit about your work. Your book, Suspect Citizens, has made a major contribution to our understanding of policing in the United States. Um, Could you give us some background on how this book came into being? Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, I moved to the University of North Carolina in 2009, and I had just recently before that published a book about the death penalty. So when I arrived in North Carolina, I was introduced uh, through professional contacts to a vibrant community of attorneys who work in the issue of uh, capital defense and appeals uh, for people who've been sentenced to death. Mm. North Carolina has a pretty substantial death row. And uh, through my connections and getting to know some of these attorneys, um, I was asked by another attorney who's also in the field of criminal justice reform if I would volunteer to serve on a task force that was looking into various aspects of racial disparities in the criminal justice system uh, within the state. Mm -hmm. And so I volunteered to do that. And at the first meeting, uh, she handed me a CD that had a database on the CD, completely unformatted and almost impossible to decipher. But it turned out to be the database of the uh, state uh, traffic stops. Uh, This was in 2012. And um, so it took me some time to, with my graduate students, to get our hands around this database, but eventually we issued a report in 2000, later in that same year, a couple months after we got the data, we issued a report that showed that there was a quite substantial racial disparity in the odds that a traffic stop would lead to a search, uh, which we found to be the most kind of revealing statistic in the entire database. There's, it's a very complicated and complete database, so there's lots of interesting things to look at. But we decided that the most interesting single indicator that the police view you with suspicion is whether after a routine traffic stop, they decide that they want to search your car. Well, all right. Um, And I actually tried to download your data set from the Suspect Citizens website the other day, and my computer promptly failed to open it. Uh, It's quite a large data set. We had to use the UNC supercomputer in order to manipulate the data set at first. And, and I should also say that the initial response to our report in 2012 was that the North Carolina Association of Chiefs of Police mm-hmm. and the North Carolina Association of Sheriffs jointly hired a consultant to debunk our study. 
I don't know what budget they put into that, but they put a lot of effort to try to make sure that our study would not see the light of day and it would be discredited. And um, so it's kind of like the stages of grief. I think the first response by these people was to engage in anger and denial. And I think today, since we published our book and they understand that I'm not going away and also, I think the kind of professional tone that we've taken to describe these disparities and then start a conversation about what is causing them uh, has caused them to start to engage in the conversation a little bit more constructively. Well, I think that reaction to your study says a lot about the place that we're in as a country. Um, and I want to get into that. But first of all, um, you know, what impact has this racially biased policing that you've identified uh, had on America's democratic fabric? Well, in our book, we, uh, we make the distinction between people who can go through their lives understanding that they're full citizens of our democracy and those who go through mm-hmm. their lives with uh, occasional or more than occasional reminders that the police view them as suspects. That's why we chose the title Suspect Citizens for our book. Uh, so, for example, you know, I'm a middle class um, college professor and uh, mm-hmm. I'm white, male, middle aged, and um, I rarely have any interactions with the police other than publishing this book and talking with them about things they don't like to talk about. But as a regular citizen, I rarely have interactions with the police. And um, I live in a neighborhood where the police rarely appear. Mm-hmm. And I've never, I haven't been pulled over by a policeman in a traffic stop situation in over 20 years. So for me, interactions with the police are rare, um, almost non-existent actually. And then when they do occur, they're quite respectful and polite. And I don't feel under threat. But when you look at uh, people with other demographic characteristics, that's just not the case. Police interactions might be quite common. They might not be respectful at all. And they might continually remind that that young man, is typically a younger man, uh, that he's not viewed uh, neutrally. He's viewed as a potential criminal suspect at all times, even when he leaves his house to go get the morning paper or to walk to school. Uh, so that's what the book is about. And I think that we, we really suffer as a country from what I've called an empathy gap. That is the inability of people to understand that what life is like for them isn't necessarily similar to what life is like for people who live in another community or another side of town or across the street. I thought it was really interesting to hear that North Carolina hired a consultant to disprove your findings when you came out with everything in 2012. Um, but More generally, how have you been using the book's findings to raise awareness about this issue? What have you guys been up to over the past, well, over the past two years since the book was published and the really decades since you've been engaging or since you started engaging with this work? Well, we've been engaged in the work for, you know, since 2012. And I would say through that time, uh, I previously didn't have much experience dealing with policing matters in particular. I had done some work on the death penalty, but that's more of Mm -hmm. a courts issue. Uh, And then before that, I hadn't really worked within the field of criminal justice at all. I'd written works on other parts of public policy. Mm -hmm. 
since uh, 2002, I've had a lot of conversations with police chiefs throughout the state and in some other states and with some city councils, city managers, people who are concerned about managing their police departments and understand that it's not helpful to have uh, disparate policing. Um, and then we've also gotten quite engaged with a number of community activist organizations who've contacted me, uh, trying to get support for their uh, reform demands, uh, trying to understand the statistics and the patterns of policing in their community. And um, I guess I'd say a lot of media uh, conversations about the allegations of disparate policing and as a social scientist, to be able to sit there calmly and say, yeah, the statistics back up the complaints and we need to take these things seriously. So more than any book that I've done, and I, I think this was my 12th book or something like that, this book has gotten a lot of attention uh, in a wide variety of applied policy communities where um, people want to understand what to do because we've really put some numbers on some very serious problems. Yeah, that empirical perspective is definitely very valuable when looking at this issue. Um, and I think that kind of advocacy is a good springboard to transition into the advocacy that we've been seeing this summer with the death of George Floyd while in police custody and other dramatic instances of law enforcement brutality that are fueling protest movements across the country um, and prompting America to have a bit of a reckoning with, you know, its uh, past history of criminal justice and uh, race relations. So how are these protests shaping public opinion around policing in this country? Well, I mentioned earlier this concept of the empathy gap, and I think the empathy gap is closing because of these videotaped encounters of violence where I think many of us have seen some of these videos. And for those of us who've never had such an experience or observed one in our neighborhoods, it's shocking. Uh, it seems like it's from another world or from some kind of horror movie. Uh, but actually, these are real events, and the um, the 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 continued number of them, like they just keep coming out one after another after another. And I think all of us know that we only see the tip of the iceberg of all such events that occur out there in the world. We only know about a few of them, relatively speaking. And so those really answer the question about whether this is just an isolated incident, it's just one bad apple, or whether this is a systemic problem that we really have to address. And I think we now know that it's a systemic problem that we really have to address. It's not just a one-off tragedy that occurred but doesn't get repeated around the country every day or every week. This is uh, something that I think many of us were unaware of. It reminds me of some kind of amusing situations I've had in presenting about my research to different audiences. Sometimes I present my research to audiences that are quite white and middle class, and many of the questions come out as uh, where the tone is that people are shocked and appalled that these terrible things are happening and they're so surprised that these things are happening. And then other times I'll give the same presentation or sometimes it's in the same audience, there'll be a person of color who will, and oftentimes an older man who will say to me, 
did they pay you to do this research? Because everything that you've shown is obvious. Everybody's known this for the past 40 years. It's ridiculous that somebody would have to do this amount of research to understand whether the police behave differently in the black community. And they're kind of angry that I would have spent so much time documenting something that to them is so obvious. And so I always chuckle with that question because I say to that person, well, I know it's happened. You know it's happened, <laughs> but you know many Americans don't believe it. And uh, so I think the, one of the things I've tried to do in the research is to close that empathy gap and to try to get people to understand that the policeman who's charming on one side of town might not be so charming on the other side of town. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, we live in a media environment now where it's hard to maintain that empathy gap that you were talking about. And, you know, we also have research packages like Stata that are very useful for, you know, documenting the stark inequities that we see and how police treat different groups. So... It is uh, one, as one aspect of our research that I think picks on something you mentioned is the statistical, the large database aspect of it. You know, these are administrative mm -hmm. records, and I think that as time goes by, there's going to be more and more administrative records available that are routinely kept in uh, government computers. And uh, I think it's important that social scientists get the skills to understand how to use them. So I've recently started working on a database, which is a record from the North Carolina court system of everybody mm -hmm. who's been arrested since 2013. And it's a bit of a nightmare to work with this database, but I think it's very promising uh, because it will reveal a lot of disparities and differences in how people are treated through the court system after they're arrested. And it's never been analyzed before. And so I think there's any number of opportunities for young social scientists with good computer skills and good big data skills and data visualization skills to really make a difference by looking at some of these administrative record databases that are increasingly available. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll look forward to checking out that study whenever you publish it. And you make a very good case for political science majors to study computer science and econometrics as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it's really important, yeah. I think, in the coming years for people to understand, and even, even if they're not using it professionally within social movements to understand how to use data, uh, it really makes a difference. Yeah. Um, to pivot a bit back towards the protests again, um, this summer we've, of course, heard a lot about defunding the police and abolishing prisons. And, of course, these statements mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But I think the sentiment behind them is that we are so far gone as a country that reform to our criminal justice institutions is just not viable. We need to reinvent them. And I wonder what you think about this kind of reform versus, um, you know, scorched earth uh, philosophy and debate that we're having right now? Well, I, I'm not a fan of some of the rhetoric that's been used uh, because I feel like some of the rhetoric uh, sets an all or nothing kind of uh, confrontation uh, that one wants to completely abolish the police and prison system, uh, even for violent criminals who really hurt somebody. Uh, mm -hmm. or one wants to do nothing at all. 
And I, I don't think that's helpful. I think there can be quite dramatic, very, very radical changes with regards to our support for social services, educational opportunities, job opportunities, just thinking about how we organize our society and what jobs and problems and tasks do we expect the police department to handle versus other agencies within the government or in the private sector or in the nonprofit sector? And why should a police officer who's armed with a gun and handcuffs and can offer you jail time as a solution to your problem? He's not necessarily the right public agent to deal with every public problem. So I think we could all agree to that. Um, but we wouldn't all agree that we need to completely abolish uh, prisons, even for people who commit homicide. That's just not that's not going to work. So, as a final question, we are living in a in an incredibly tumultuous time, and I wonder if you have any advice for undergraduates around my age on what we can do to make an impact in the world in the most positive way possible. Well, to make an impact in the world, I think one thing uh, I, I would say is um, stay focused on something related to social justice or making the world a better place. It could be economic justice or environmental justice or some kind of improvement in the state of the world uh, rather than simply being focused on some kind of material success or whatever the capitalist system offers as a career opportunity. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that social justice and commitment to equality and um, justice in general should not be a part-time job. It's not that hard to find a career path where that's integral to what you do as part of your job. That's your day job. It's not your avocation or something that you do on nights and weekends as a volunteer. So I think it's useful to just think through, you know, what are your career goals? What do you want to be able to say about yourself when you're my age, when you're in your 60s and you've spent 30 or 40 years in your career chosen career path? Do you want to say that now that I'm closing in on retirement, I'm going to use the money that I've earned to do some good and get involved in some philanthropic activities? Or would you rather look back at your career and say, you know what, in my career, I affected this number of people and I had this impact on various institutions and I moved the needle in the direction of justice and and peace and equity and environmental improvement rather than degradation. Yeah, that's a very compelling point you raise and something that I think we all need to keep in mind as we're about to enter the workforce. So thank you very much for your thoughts there. Um, And thank you very much, Frank, for joining us today. It means a lot. And to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, everyone. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Howard. We hope you'll join us for our next episode, and if you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.